Amen. If you have a Bible, thank you for praying with me. And if you have a Bible, I would love for you to open up with me to Romans chapter 12. We are entering the final uh, uh, section of Romans. Uh, we talked about how there are four sections of Romans, uh, and Romans 12 is the beginning of that final section. Uh, what Romans 1 was for condemnation, introducing us to our depravity, our sinfulness, our need for God's intervention. Romans 1 introduced condemnation. Romans 3 uh, introduced justification, how by faith we are justified from our sin. Romans 8, taught us about unification, how we're united with Christ and we're brought to be one with Christ. So Romans 1 gave us condemnation. Romans 3 gave us justification. Romans 8 gave us unification. So Romans 12 is going to give us sanctification. You've heard of this word before. Maybe you've heard a lot about this word before. Some groups focus on it more than others. It should be a, a word and an idea that every Christian should know a lot about. So if you don't know a lot about sanctification, or if you don't really think you know a lot about sanctification, or you would like to know more about sanctification, tonight is just the beginning of what will be a several weeks long study under this banner. Romans 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, uh, Specifically, the next three chapters are all about sanctification in the life of a believer. Uh, it's going to be our big and key word in Romans 12 and going forward. Uh, and I think as much as we've gotten out of Romans 1 through 11, and we've gotten a lot because we've spent the last six months almost, uh, yeah, since January, we've spent the, the last six months wringing out everything that we could possibly get out of Romans 1 through 11. Uh, we are going to get, I think, the most out of Romans 12 through 16. So if you think I've learned so much, Justin, from the first 11 chapters, how could I ever learn more? We'll, we'll see if we can uh, prove that, to wrong, that, that, that theory wrong. But if you have forgotten some things that you've learned, hey, at least you can learn some more things as we go forward. But in seriousness, Romans is an incredible book. We could start over in Romans 1 when we get done with Romans 16 and we would learn more and we would be uh, introduced to even ideas that we didn't get the first time. But Romans 12 through 16 are going to be uh, very, very, very important for you as a Jesus follower, as, a, some, as somebody who attends a church, uh, a, a Bible-believing church, as someone who attends a midweek service, Romans 12 through 16 were designed and were written especially to you all. Uh, so Romans 12 through 16 can probably be best described as uh, the dessert to the book of Romans. Uh, if Romans is a meal, uh, Romans 16, uh, Romans 12 through 16 is the dessert. Now specifically think of the dessert at a big meal or a big uh, you know, seasonal meal like Thanksgiving or Christi Christmas. And, and the problem with dessert at Thanksgiving or the dessert at Christmas, which you should never use the word problem and dessert in the same sentence, I'm sure, uh, right? Because it's always a good thing. But the problem with dessert at Thanksgiving or Christmas is the meal is so, so elaborate and it takes so long and so many plates, right, to get through the meal that when you get to dessert, you barely have room for it. And of course you make room for it, but that's probably not a good idea when you do, right? You don't feel good after you eat the dessert. You really don't appreciate it. And I mean, using the word appreciating food is a little bit gluttonous of us, right? Or of me, but um, I mean, you appreciate people, you don't appreciate food. Um, you appreciate the cooks, right? But, uh, you know, I don't know about y'all, but when, you know, you eat Thanksgiving meal and you eat two or three servings of stuff. Um, when you get to dessert, the only thing you really get out of eating it is you just kind of feel worse than you already did. You don't really appreciate the food. Uh, it tastes good, but it doesn't make you feel good. Does that make sense? Um, so uh, to not get too distracted, uh, you eat it, but you don't really enjoy it. Uh, 
Romans 12 uh, is kind of that way. Uh, if you've just started in Romans and you just don't get up from, you know, you read it and you just dive in and you don't stop reading it. By the time you get to Romans 12, you're so full in a good way, in a spiritual way. You're so full that you run the risk of really missing what Romans 12 through 16 offers you. Thankfully, we haven't been here all day studying. Uh, if we were here all day, we'd just be in chapter three probably, but you know what I mean. We haven't been here for a, for a marathon. Uh, we've taken breaks. We've taken our time. We've set a good pace. Uh, so we have allowed each chapter to properly uh, uh, you know, to simmer and, and, and we focused on them as we should. So now as we get to Romans 12, it, it's not like the dessert at the end of a big meal. We get to appreciate it for what it is. But if you ever study Romans uh, in one sitting or in a couple of sittings, you know, smaller smaller focus, um, it's easy to leave these chapters out because again, there's so much at the front. You know, we talk about why we need to be saved and how we get saved and what that means immediately. It's easy to forget about what the rest of the book has to offer, especially since Romans 9, 10, and 11 kind of go on a detour and talk about uh, the, the, the theological underpinnings of it all. And we talked about Israel and the future of Israel. So we kind of get lost in the weeds. It's easy to think, well, Romans 12 must not be that important. It absolutely is that important. And again, maybe more important than, you, uh, than, than, than we could even uh, say with words. We get hyped, obviously, and we've, you know, I did a lot of hyping about Romans 5 through 8. Is I probably said they were the four most important chapters in the Bible, and, and I think that's true. In terms of how uh, they explain salvation to us, there, there's no eternity without Romans 5 through 8. There's no Christianity. There's no coming to know Jesus without those chapters. If you're not a Christian, Romans 5 through 8 are the most important chapters you can read because they show you how you can be a Christian. Uh, they introduce you to what it means to be saved by faith and, and what it means to be brought into relationship with Jesus. Uh, so we talked about those chapters in, in, in extensive detail. Uh, how they unveil what salvation does for us internally. Uh, we, we talked about being united with Christ, being filled with the Spirit, uh, how we are made to be one with Him, how we're given a new nature. Remember those sermons, Romans 6, we spent a lot of talking about uh, being alive in Him, being made one with Him. Uh, Romans 7, talking about not being under law anymore, under grace. And we spent so many weeks really digging into what it means to be saved. Uh, and, and, and even in those chapters, talking about salvation, uh, talking about justification and unification, the seeds were planted for what we're about to get into. And that is a very important foundation for where we're going to go to next. Sanctification is a direct result of justification and unification, as in you don't get to sanctification unless you go through these other steps. Of course, that makes sense, right? It's a direct result. It is the supernatural overflow of being united with Christ, as in Back in chapter five, we have been given access to God's grace. We have been taken out of Adam and put into Jesus. Back in Romans six, we have been baptized into Jesus. We are no longer in sin. We are in Christ. We are no longer under law. We are under grace. Romans seven talked about how we have that nature in us that wants to do wrong, but now we have a new nature that wants to do what's right. Romans eight talked about how we are children of God. We are joint heirs with Jesus. So all of that has been bubbling up inside of you and and it's leading you to Romans 12 through 16. Romans 5 through 8 goes into the theological details of how we are saved and why salvation changes us, how it changes us, and, what it, and why it changes us. And we talked about all those different things, again, from Adam to Jesus, from sin to grace, from law to spirit. Uh, 
our inheritance as children of God. And go back and listen to the tape if you need a reminder because there's so much there that you, you, we could benefit from again and again. Uh, all those things are super crucial for a Christian to know about so that we can fully appreciate and be held accountable to our new Christian identity. So uh, we talked about the, the word soteriology, means study of salvation. If Romans 5 through 8 is an entry-level Christianity class, uh, Romans 12 through 16 is the next step. It's the next level. It's, hey, you've got through the gate. Now what should you do? Or now what should you know? Romans 12 is going to take us by the hand and say, you've heard about the how, and you know about the why. You know uh, how salvation changed you. You know why it changed you, what Jesus did inside of you, and what his spirit's going to do through you or wants to do through you. You know the how. You know the why. Now let's talk about the what. What should we be doing now that we are in Christ? What should our lives look like now that we've come alive to these truths? So now you probably know, why is this so important? Because yeah, the why is important. Yeah, the how is important. But naturally, the next step is the what. What should we be doing? What should our lives look like now that we are in Christ, now that we are under grace, now that we are filled with the Spirit, now that we are children of the living God? What should our lives look like? An important question to ask. If you don't ask it every day, uh, you, you probably should. Uh, two words that we use a lot around here that we're going to use a lot in the next couple of weeks uh, that I think are unfortunately, tragically not pressed into church's vernacular as they should be are the words practical and the words application or applicable. Practical and application. You hear me use those words a lot. It's because Romans 12 is so influential in my teaching and my preaching and, and the way I believe the church should be focused on. Uh, Romans 12 is one of the most practical and application-based passages in the entire Bible. Uh, Romans 12 is the template that Paul uses in other chapters, that Peter uses in, other, in his letters, and James and everybody else. Um, and here's what I mean. I think that the church historically hasn't talked enough about practical, uh, the practical teaching of God's word or the practical application of God's word. I think we all know a lot about how we're saved. We all know a lot about why we should be saved and why salvation changes us. All of you, if you've been in church for more than a month, you know, uh, you know why you need to be saved. You know how you got saved. You know why salvation has made you different. You know how, uh, you know, you know how salvation changes you internally and, 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 and that it redirects your, your future. You know those things and you've heard those things preached since you were in Bible school or in Sunday school. Even if you could never imagine preaching or talking in front of people. If you, especially here on a Wednesday night, if you've been in church most of your life and you've heard sermons from Romans 5 through 8 and the likes preached, you could get in front of a church and you could explain, here's why we should be saved, here's how we get saved, and here's why it changes us and what it does for us internally. You could do that. You, anybody that, that, that is a faithful church member is capable, more than you realize, of explaining those things. But... I think a lot of those sermons that I grew up hearing, that you grew up hearing, a lot of those sermons uh, that, that focus on the how of salvation and the why of salvation, a lot of those sermons in the same way. A lot of them borrow from the language of Romans 5 through 8, how we have access to God's grace, how we're under grace, we're alive in Christ, we're dead in our sin, we're brought to life in Christ, that we're in the spirit. A lot of those sermons pretty much in the same way. Something like this. Now that we're saved, 
You can do better, so go and do it. For years and years and years, I heard sermons that helped me a lot and changed my heart and, and ultimately brought me to Jesus. But the sermons were like this. This is why you, can, you need to be saved. This is how you get saved. It's what it does for you internally. So now that you are saved, you should be different. You should do better. Go and do it. And I would always sit there and, and, and say, well, tell me what to do. Specifically, I, I like instructions. Tell me what to do. Not only the Bible actually told me what to do, but I was just at the mercy of whoever was talking to me. The only problem with that kind of resolution that all, that, that's so tempting to end with uh, is it's like being given a car with a full tank of gas and you're told to go to a certain place, but you've never been there before and nobody has given you a map. That if a preacher just stands in front of you and says, you've been saved, you should be different, but they don't tell you what should be different and they don't guide you in what should be different. And of course the Bible leads you in the Bible in telling you that. If there isn't any direction given, then the gas in the car isn't going to do anything for you. And, and you know this as, as well as I know this. Uh, when you were little and you were younger or teenager and you were left at home and your parents said, hey, make sure you clean up and, and, and you know, do this and that. Unless they told you specifically what to do, you didn't do it. Because you assumed that that was going to be a way for you to get out of doing anything, right? That's just how our nature is. Being told you should do something is not going to lead to anything unless the specifics are given. A, a lot of sermons, and, and I've preached enough like this in my life, I know this. A lot of sermons are theological and spiritually rich, but they offer no practical application. So we're left knowing how and why, but we don't know what to do. The Spirit, yes, the Spirit will guide you, but the Bible gives the, the instruction that it gives and ministers are called to preach what they're called to preach for the reason of showing us that God actually tells us what to do and the Bible is actually rich in giving us the guidance that we desperately need. The Bible is full of practical and application-based guidance of which Romans 12 is the cornerstone, it is the apex of the content. But unfortunately, this is not always front and center in Christian churches. I don't know why. I think there's a lot of reasons why we don't like to be, we like to be kind of vaguely convicted, but not specifically, right? You know, people, it's like, we like to go to church and hear sermons that make us feel bad, but not bad enough to actually change, right? So we come back next week and we, oh, we feel bad, but we leave and we go back and we just do the same things again. Conviction for a lot of us is the religious experience, but the Bible wants us to do more than just feel bad. It wants us to be better and to do better. And Christianity is the way to be the person that God's called us to be, but it, ha but it requires that we hear from God's word how, what we should do and, and how that can be done. So Romans 12 is the map that's gonna show us what to do with what we've been given. Not just this one chapter in itself, but this is the template that the rest of the Bible pulls from. Romans 12 is the part of the sermon that usually gets left out. It's the harder part of the sermon because it's so convicting but it's so clear that you can't get around it. Uh, Romans 12 isn't just gonna tell us, go and be better. It's gonna tell us what better looks like and what better can be like. Again, Romans 12, and this, this is the really important part because you might've heard opposite before. Romans 12 is not an option. 
meant only for super devoted Christians. As in Romans 12 isn't where you go if you want to be a little bit more devoted. Romans 12 is where every Christian should go and has to go. If you are a follower of Jesus, Romans 12 is looking at you saying, this is the gate you must walk through. Romans 12 is not just for super devoted Jesus followers. Romans 12 is for all followers of Jesus. The Romans road does not stop at Romans 8 once you're in Christ and saved. That is not the end of the Romans road or otherwise it would be the end of the book of Romans, right? Romans continues and Romans 12 is that next leg of the race. It's not an option. It is the pathway for all Christians, all who are true followers of Jesus and emphasis on that identity. We've covered this before. There is a temptation in the Christian world to separate believers in Jesus and disciples of Jesus. You ever heard somebody do that before? Maybe somebody told you that and and unfortunately that kind of got ingrained in your head and I, I was there before. The Bible does not differentiate between believers and followers. The Bible doesn't say there are some that believe and that's okay and then there's some that do more. The Bible only speaks of one kind of Christian, Jesus followers. We've talked about this before a lot, haven't we? The Bible does not talk about believers and followers as if they're separate or different or as if there's this level and that level. The Bible speaks of one kind of Christian, the only kind of Christian, Jesus followers. Disciples are not special kinds of saints. They're the only kind of saint. That's why Romans 12 is so important because Romans 12 puts the follower in Jesus' follower. It shows us where we should be going as a Jesus follower. Listen, you're not going to get into Jesus. You're not going to be in Christ unless you go through Romans 1 through 8. Obviously, that's important. But once you are in Christ, there's some following to do. Does that make sense? There's some walking to do. Remember Romans 8, walk in the spirit. Well, where are you going to walk to? Romans 12 tells you where you are walking to, who you are walking to. Jesus made it very clear in his own ministry. He put it this way early and often when people first met Jesus, he made it very clear. Yes, I care about what you believe. You better believe before you can get in. But I'm not gonna stop at belief. We're going a little farther than that because belief is gonna produce behavior. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount preached this famous parable. Everyone who hears these words of mine and, what's the words? Does them. Hearing and doing will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And y'all know the song, and the rains came and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house and it did not fall. Why did it not fall? Because it was founded on the rock. What's the rock? Hearing and doing, right? The rock is a foundation of hearing and doing what Jesus says, That's the rock. Jesus saves us, but once we're in Christ, we are following him. It did not fall because they heard and they did. And of course, the contrary. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. So both of them heard Jesus. Both of them were Jesus hearers. And probably were Jesus believers, because if they were hearing, they probably believed. How could you not believe the person that you hear? The rain fell and the floods came, the winds blew and beat against the house, but it did not stand. It fell and great was the fall 
of it. So what does Jesus say is the most important part or is the only, is the important part of Christianity? Hearing and doing. Because if you're gonna follow somebody, you're gonna go where they are and you're gonna be like they are. Now, James, the brother of Jesus, took this sermon of Jesus and made it the inspiration for his entire letter. And in the introduction of his book, he says, remember my brother's sermon about the house that fell and the house that stood and the wind and the rain and the rocks and the sand? Remember that sermon? Remember what the, the thesis of that sermon was? That we would not just be hearers, but that we would be doers of the word. Where did he get that from? His brother, right? Jesus taught, don't just be a hearer, be a doer. So James says, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And then James had his own little word or his own little analogy or his own little picture. For anyone who is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. As in, hey, I, I see myself in the mirror and there's some stuff I need to do to fix this. Now, y'all don't have that problem because y'all look in the mirror and see everything perfect, right? But I just look in the mirror sometimes and I'm like, man, some stuff's crooked. Some stuff's not, you know, it doesn't grow the same on this side as that side. And, you know, now if I came in here and I don't have facial hair, so this isn't a problem. But if I came in here and I said, hey, will y'all pray for me? I was looking in the mirror earlier today and I really need to shave or I really need to work on something. I need to fix my hair. I need to, if I came in here and said, hey, will y'all pray for me because I need to fix this? You would say, Justin, <laughs> there's no reason to pray. Just get a razor or get a comb or just wash your face, right? I mean, I'm, that's not being insensitive. That would just be being, telling me the truth that you're looking in the mirror. You see what you've got to do. So do it. And, and James says, the one that looks in the mirror intently and walks away, he looks at himself and he goes away and forgets as in he looks at it and he identifies the issue, but he does not do anything about it. He buys the bucket of paint he buys the brush and the paper and all the things you need to paint the house, but he doesn't ever open the bucket, right? And what good does unapplied paint do? It's like anything. If, if you buy a membership to a gym or if you buy the workout gear and you buy the, the, the tote bag and all the energy drinks and all the stuff, but you never actually go to the gym or you never actually work out, what good is all that stuff going to do for you? Yeah, you might be a gym member because you bought the stuff, but if you actually don't do anything, are you really a member? Are you really in the gym? Now, are you really exercising? No, you're not. James says, Jesus said, don't just be a hearer, be a doer. Don't just be a believer, be a follower. This is why, and, and if you've been here long enough, you know this, but if you've, seen, if you've noticed some change in me over the last, if you've been listening to me for that long, God bless you. The year, years ago, I made it a goal to focus all of my efforts on this kind of teaching and preaching. I love theological deep dives. I can sit down with you and talk about theology all night long. Lindsay can vouch for that. It's boring. It puts you to sleep. But if you want to, you know, it literally puts her to sleep. If you want to talk Bible and deep theological things, we did that for the last four months if you've been here for Romans. If you want to go deep into the things of the Bible and theology and all those things, I can do that. I've written 20, 30, 50, 40 page papers on that stuff. I love it. I can preach it all night long. It's, it's, it's not my favorite thing to do, but I can do it with God's help. I love teaching the stories of the Bible. I love learning facts. I, you know, I, I, all the numbers, all the numerology, all the different heroes. I know all that. I love all that stuff. And I love teaching that stuff. But I learned a long time ago that if, it's, if we just learn it and it doesn't give us anything 
to do with it, or there's not a, an application-based principle attached to it, what good is it doing? My passion, my uh, motive all throughout my ministry or last, the last few years at least has been application makes all the difference in eternity. What we did with what we knew is what will matter most. And, and listen, this hurts my feelings sometimes. There's not gonna be a test when you get to heaven. I would love for there to be a test when we get to heaven because I think I do pretty good at it. Now you probably would too because you guys come to church all the time. Of course, you know a lot about the Bible and that's great, you should. But if it's just about knowledge, that's not gonna make a difference when it counts. Over the past decade, I've slowly shifted all my way into the, and, this, and honestly, it's what I love to do the most. Uh, I, I, I feel it. I, at first I felt inadequate doing it, but slowly it's become something I, I really, really, really am passionate about. The more I read the Bible, the more I realize that's what God's always wanted us to get from his word. And it's passages like Romans 12 that serve to interpret the rest and offer a filter through which the rest should be read. So that's what I want us to take into Romans 12. I know that's a big introduction, but y'all are used to this by now when we get to these sections. We got a lot to, to get talked to, to put in front of us. That's a big introduction, but we've learned so much in Romans. And as students of the Bible, you know so much about the Bible, but the Holy Spirit is pressing one specific question on you. What are you doing with what you know? I love that you know it. It's great. God bless you for it. But what are you doing with it? Practically speaking, how are you following Jesus? What is different in your life. There's no vagueness in Romans 12. There's no ambiguity. There's no suggestion. It's black and white inspired truth. You've been saved. Now you're in Christ. You are a Jesus follower. Here's what your faith looks like in practice. The preface of Romans 12 makes it clear that, that makes it clear what posture we should take in with us. And that's an important place for us to start. So look with me at Romans 12, one through one and two. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service or which is your reasonable worship to God. Do not be conformed by, to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. God. So let's break this down. The word beseech you, I beseech you is one Greek word. I beseech you is a single Greek word, parakaleo. It's a, work, a word that it literally means I call to you. I cry out to you. I plead to you. It's the word used in a courtroom summons. I am summoning you. You, you don't have, you know, if you get summoned to jury duty, you got to go, right? Call the number. They might say, come back next week, but you got to go. You get summoned, you know, you can lie and say, hey, I got something to do or I know somebody, but you're going to have to go through the system, right? Paul says, I summons you. But the cool thing about parakaleo is the word has, the word is coded with and is, is, is really uh, at the core of the word is an encouraging and an admonition and an admonishing word. So when you hear the word parakaleo, when you hear the word, I beseech you, you don't have to question, is this a good summons or is this a bad summons? 
Remember back in school when the teacher or principal would give you a note or would give you a nudge and say, hey, I need to talk to you after school, you, w- you would wonder, is this good or bad? Am I, am I getting in trouble? Is this a good thing? Your parents are called up, hey, is this good or bad? In school or maybe at work or in your own personal life, you don't like when that kind of stuff happens because you don't know whether they're wanting to talk to you for good or for bad. But this word, and it's a unique thing about the Greek, this word, there's no question when you hear this phrase, I beseech you. To us, it just sounds like a word that somebody's calling on you and, hey, hey, come and see me. But the Greek word is, I'm, I'm trying to get your attention to encourage you and to admonish you with something. There is no question if this is for your good or not, this is for your best. So no question. When, when you hear this, I beseech you, this is, see the word, therefore, The word therefore says, hey, you've heard all these first 11 chapters. Therefore, hearing all that, you are being summoned by God. You are being called into account by God. Don't be caught off guard. You've heard all this. This is the next step. The word Paul uses here is baked into the meaning that this is a kind of summons that we want to receive. And good news, you've just received it. It's clearly one of the most one of the utmost necessity, it's of the utmost necessity that we respond to and adhere. You've been summoned by the king, you should respond. Here he says, I have cast an invitation over you, over all of us. Let's go to the next slide. An invitation bidding us to step into the most blessed, enriched, fulfilled life available to anyone. That's what you've just been summoned to. I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, by God's compassion, by the mercy, by the gift of God's grace. What is that? That's the gospel. That's what you just read eight chapters worth of and and, and, and the whole book of Romans so far. I beseech you by this gospel that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. As in, hey, you're alive. You're more alive than you've ever been. You are full of the life of Jesus. You are following Jesus. So present yourself to God on a daily, momentary basis. You heard this invitation. You've been given this summons. You are a follower of Jesus. This is your next step. Present yourself to God as a living servant or sacrifice so that you might know what is his will being transformed by the life he just put in you. Two words I want to focus on here. Present your bodies. Present means to show up. I can't present you. Someone else can't present you. You alone can present you. Does that make sense? Present, the word there means come close. What have we learned about in Romans? The separation is gone. The animosity is gone. The tension is gone. The sin is gone. Judgment is gone. There is no reason for you not to come as close as you can to God. He's inviting you to get as close as you can. And he's about to commission you as a result. Come close. If you think there's room to come closer, there probably is. And now hear this word bodies. The emphasis is on our physical body, as if there is anything else than that. Uh, Now, this is going to play into the fact that he later talks about the church body, so the word body of Christ. The point is, this isn't just a spiritual thing. This is literal. This is an in-flesh activity that Christians are called to come together. Because notice he says brethren, as that's plural, brothers and sisters. 
come together and be transformed together by the power of God as the church of God. Now, I know in our world today, we've had challenges the last couple of years, but we, well, we are well aware of how that takes away from what the church is all about. And thankfully, we're on the other side of that. But the call is that there are physical bodies presented before God, all united before him around this next step we're supposed to take. So let me say this. I, I, I don't want to get off on a tangent, but I kind of have to. Church, I think this, should, this makes it very clear. We've got to make sure that we're make, we got to make sure that we're making room for everybody. Does that make sense? What is the invitation? Christ has died for sins. The separation is gone. The animosity is gone. Bring your body before God. There's no fear. There's no judgment. There's no condemnation. Remember that? Bring your body. So church, we got to make sure that we're making room for everybody. The message is to come near for everyone. Now, let me just say this, because I think this is something we'll find a little bit humorous, but it's very convicting. The church loves to do two things. To complain about how more should come and to complain about how some shouldn't come. Right? Oh, why don't they come? Oh, they shouldn't come. We do both, don't we? More should be here, but uh, not those people. We got to make our mind, don't we? The Bible should make our mind up for us. The Bible should change our mind. Paul says, come. Because how are we going to be transformed? By coming, right? By stepping forward. That's the theological truth behind being taught that, that, that can bring about the practical change. That's how our lives are changed. That's our minds are changed. Our actions are changed. When bodies come before God and hear the good news and begin to discern what is God's will for them, right? What verse two, two says, do not be conformed, be transformed by your mind being renewed that you may prove that you may learn what is God's will. And you won't learn unless you come and be transformed. That takes us right into verse three. Five. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, everyone means everyone, everyone, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. So notice how he immediately he, he deals with the religious in the room, because there might be a few. Don't think yourself more highly than you should, but to think soberly, because we just read the first eight chapters, we know how we got here, and it wasn't because we earned our way. As God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ, individually members of one another. As in we are tethered to each other. Can't wiggle away from that, can you? You can leave the building and go to another building, but guess what you do when you enter another building? You tether yourself to more different people. And you can leave that building because those people don't make you happy or they don't do what you want them to do, but you then go to somewhere else and you are immediately tethered to somebody else. The church is a body of people, wherever you meet, whoever you meet with. And if you take away these four walls, we're all tethered to each other in the grand scheme of things. You know what's really holding the church back from obtaining this kind of unity? I think it's pretty clear. We are not clear what grace is and who grace is for. Because Paul says that all of us have received, he says, the grace given to me 
Everyone has been given this grace. What is grace? Grace is what changes us. Grace is what saves us. And it's for everyone and all are welcome to receive it and we must all share it. If you've received grace, you should share grace. If you're here based on anything other than grace, then you are not obligated to share it. But if you got saved through grace, then you got to share it. And if you got saved through any other way, I'll hear you. And you're not obligated to share it. But I don't think that applies to anybody, does it? Many of us are guilty of violating verse, verse three. We think we know someone, we think we know enough, so we don't need to come closer and be changed. Or we think we've done enough, so we don't need to come closer and be changed all the more. Or, or there are those who don't consider what they should be doing because they say, well, I don't really think it matters what I'm doing because all the hypocrites that are not doing what they should be doing. That makes no sense, but people use that argument all the time. Well, I'm not gonna go to the church or not just the physical church, but I'm not gonna go to a body of believers and surrender myself to God because there's a lot of hypocrites there and they're not doing what they should do. So that means I don't have to do what I should do. Again, that is a very lame excuse. Oh God, uh, hey God, on judgment day. Well, the reason why I didn't present my body is because the people that were presenting their bodies, they weren't sincere. And if they weren't sincere and they were presenting their bodies, then I don't think I should have to present my body because, well, can we go back to talking about them? Because they were presenting their bodies, but they weren't being sincere. So that's why I didn't present mine. Really? Does that work? You think God's gonna say, oh, that's okay? I don't blame you. I don't think that works, does it? Oh, I didn't consider what my responsibility was because all the other people were being irresponsible. And that's the biggest reason people give me why they don't go or why they don't attend or why they don't gather. And that's the biggest point of criticism for the church. Number one, the grace that God gave you wasn't given so you could be as hypocritical as the people you're criticizing, right? God gives us grace, not so we can be hypocritical at the same time. He gives us grace because he gives everybody grace and we should give that grace to others. Number two, again, verse four and five, make it very clear. We don't get to pick and choose who's around us. We are all broken messes of people, unfinished and in progress. All of us are dependent on grace. So listen, I, I say this to y'all because y'all are the choir. I'm preaching to the choir. I know I was a little hard on us for a few minutes there, but now I'm preaching to y'all, uh, preaching to the choirs. And hey, I'm telling you what you probably already agree with. If you know somebody that doesn't go to church because the church is hypocritical, by all means, tell them to come and show us how it's done. Because the Bible says that it's the way for everybody. And they can't, nobody can tell me, well, all the hypocrites, hey, yeah, we're all messes. We're all broken. We're all unfinished. We're all in progress. And none of us should think that we're better than others. We have to give grace to each other. Give grace to the hypocrite, just like God gives you grace. Give grace to the sinner, just like God gives you grace. Give grace to everybody. If we just live by that mentality, we would all be a more accepting and loving people, wouldn't we? You know what this, is, this intro is telling us? The church fumbles the ball. The, the church fumbles the ball when it comes to taking us from knowledge to practice. We get, we get in a gridlock when it comes to, well, who's the church for and what are we here for? We, we argue and we don't ever go forward. We use our knowledge to judge others and excuse ourselves rather than forgiving others and holding ourselves accountable. That's the goal of this. Hold yourself accountable. Forgive others. Of course they need forgiveness. Of course they're a mess. We're all a mess. Rather than rallying together with determination to do something with our faith, rather than grumbling about the things that don't matter, I, I, and obviously I'm passionate about this, you can tell. 
Listen, as a pastor, I, I, I hear super religious people, and I'm very thankful for super religious people because that's the anchor of what we do. I hear super religious people that don't do a thing in, a, in practice for Jesus, but they show up and complain about the people that don't do things when they should be looking in the mirror, right? We all should be looking in the mirror. Yes, I can complain about the people that don't do anything, but what am I doing? What am I doing? I'm as unshaven as the heathen. And then you've got jaded, disheartened anti-church people who don't show up because they're the one, because of the ones that do show up and they're just as self-righteous as the Pharisees. All the while, none of us are laid out in front of God saying, here I am, send me and change me and send me. It's about what we do individually. By the logic that we use, the church should have folded when Judas sinned because they either should have fell into debate about how to never let another Judas back in or they all should have quit because Judas somehow made Jesus not a good option to follow. Does that make sense? I mean, what if the response to Judas leaving was, oh, we gotta make sure we never let another Judas back in? What if they would have done that for the next 50 days? That'd been a bad place to be at, right? There would have been no Pentecost. And what if the response to Judas leaving was, we're all leaving because if Judas, is, if Judas failed, then, hey, we can't trust Jesus. What did they do? They kept their eyes on Jesus, didn't they? We all should do that. We're in this together. And if we're gonna turn our knowledge into practice, it's going to be by joint gathering before God in humility and hunger for God to work in our lives. Look at verse six through eight. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us use prophecy in proportion to our faith. Ministry, let us use it in ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality or generosity, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. There's a big, big word jumping off the page at us in verse number six. Having gifts that differ. Man, we all just get this. What does that say about the ways that God wants to work in our lives? We are all different. Yes, the truth is the same. Yes, the grace is the same, but we are not all the same and that's okay. God is wanting to raise us all up to this excellent way. We are not gonna all look the same even if we're driven by the same spirit. Now, are there some basic things that are the underpinnings of everyone's sacrifice? Yes, and we'll get to that next week. But God has gifted us all differently. Let's respect each other's diverse and distinct gifts. And verse six specifically says, having then gifts differing according to that grace that is given to us. What is the next line? Let us use them. What if this was our goal? We're all different, that's okay, but the grace we've been given, let us use it. You see the emphasis there? Use it, don't talk about it. Don't complain about the ones that aren't. Use the gift that God's given you. The most common things that pastors hear is, I feel like God wants this done. You should do something about it. But Paul would say, I'm glad you feel that, but God didn't just give you a feeling, he gave you a vision about how to realize it, to let us use these gifts and make a difference. So many of us have strong convictions 
but we should be passionate about participation. That's what Romans 12 is calling us towards. And I think, again, where the gridlock is for the church, the grace God gave us was not to make us scholars, inspectors, or critics, but to make us servants. Why did God show you grace and save you and bring you into his house that you might surrender yourself before him? Why did God give you that gift? Not to make you a scholar, which, hey, I'm glad if you're smart. Not to make you an inspector, which you shouldn't be that. Not to make you critical, which you shouldn't be that. But we all are, aren't we? We're critical, we're inspecting, we're, oh, we we know so much, but what are you doing with it? That's what Romans 12 puts right in our face. We are called to be servants and there are so many opportunities to serve God and serve his church and serve his kingdom. But we must present our bodies before God alongside the brethren if we're ever gonna take these opportunities. Whether it's an active role in leadership, preaching, teaching, supporting, encouraging those that are in leadership, giving, managing, organizing, lending a hand. That you, from, from verse six all the way on to verse eight, you get the highest offices in the church to the behind the scenes offices in the church, but everyone is important. There's no, they're, they're, they're listed in order, but that's not in order of importance. It's just an order of what you see to what you don't see. We're all called to show mercy. We're all called to be leaders. We're all called to give. We're all called to encourage. And the things before that, it may be specific to some of you and some of you may not be in those categories, but the point of it is we're all called to participate. And notice something though, all of these things are things in the local church, aren't they? Now they're not limited to these grounds, but they spring up from them, absolutely. Verse nine sums up this introduction and it opens up a new one that we'll take next week, but let us hear the first sentence in closing. Let love be without hypocrisy. So all that we've been led to do from verse three to eight is meant to be an overflow of our love for God and our love for his people and a desire to serve him in that love. Let your love be genuine, sincerely, pure. Whatever you endeavor to do, as you put your faith into practice, it's done through love, it's done in love, it's done with love, a love for God, a love for his people. If that's not why you're doing what you're doing, back up and restart it and make sure that you're doing it in love and through love. If you have a love for God and a love for his people, as you are transformed by his truth, you will see that love is taking you into service, into participation. If you don't have that love, then I don't think you went through Romans 8 to get here. If you are here, it's because you have found a love for God and a love for his people, and you've been brought into his place, into his church, and you are coming before him, presenting yourself as a living sacrifice alongside other people, just like you, broken messes in need of grace, and you have been called into his church to serve him with these spiritual gifts, with the grace he's equipped you with, and you are doing it through, by, and in love. That's what a Jesus follower is led to do once they're in Christ. That is the summation of every Jesus follower. You love God, you love his people, and you're serving his church, and you're doing so in that genuine, pure, and sincere love. You have a role to play in God's kingdom. It begins by humbly presenting yourself before God. You've taken hold of knowledge. It's time to do something with it. We've been given so much grace. Let's use it. 
If you get anything out of this study, I hope you look at verse one and two and memorize them as best you can. I hope you look at verse number four and five and realize that you're a part of the body of Christ. I hope you look at verse six and you realize you've been given grace. Let us use that grace. I hope you look at verse nine and realize it's to be done through love. We could do a a five-part series on just those things, couldn't we? We've been given, let's use it give it, share it, live by it. Let's come together, come closer, follow him as he builds his kingdom and let's serve his purpose. As a member of his body, with love, with his love in your heart, do your part. Because you are a part of his body and you have a part to play. Present your body a living sacrifice. Realize the grace he's given you and use it and do it through love. He'll be glad you did. And you'll have taken your first step in being sanctified like every Christian should be. We'll get into more of that next week. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible calling over our lives. This applies to every Christian, church member, non-church member, church attendee, non-church attendee. We are all called to the body of Christ and we're all called alongside our brothers and sisters. We are all called as a follower of Jesus to join together, present ourselves before you so that we might realize what we've been given calls us to do something with it. There's a kingdom that you're building. There's a church that you're building. There's a world that you're changing. And you have given us grace that we might use it in this world. Lord, would you use us? Would you send us? Would you change us? Lord, let it be done through love. And let us realize that we have a part to play. We have a role to play. We have a calling. As followers of Jesus, sanctify us with this sacred calling and let us not ever be deceived by anything less. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.